please and go to Psalms 45 this evening. Psalms 45. Psalms 45. Discipleship classes are, are just dismissing. We're glad to see you here in church tonight. We're praying for the Lord just to speak in a special way. Make sure you have an outline. And aside from that, also, maybe if you don't have a Bible, uh, someone maybe could share their Bible with someone who doesn't have one to kind of guide them through things tonight. Psalms 45, we're going to read verses 1 to 8. Psalms 45, verses 1 to 8. I want to welcome our guests and visitors here tonight. Thank you for being here this evening. And we pray the Lord will encourage your heart. Psalms 45, verse 1. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and kasha out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Father, this evening, bless the reading of your word and prepare our hearts. Settle us in as we look at the study about the great king, our Lord Jesus Christ, tonight. And Father, I pray that you help us in our, through the study to help us in our worship, help us in our praying, help us in our study. Help us to draw closer to you. God, I pray through the study tonight that you would heal broken hearts. I pray that you'd heal the wounds in our lives. I pray, Father God, that we would, uh, we would embrace Jesus and grow holier than, than we've been in the past. I pray for sins to be forsaken. I pray for our thoughts to be centered on the Lord. I pray that our witness and as soul winners for Christ would, would abound because of, of what we study tonight. Would you help us tonight? Would you help those tonight who do not know Christ as Savior, that you'd give understanding? We pray that that you'll get quick in their thoughts and understanding what this is all about and seeing their need for the Lord. God, create hunger and thirst in our hearts for the Lord. And so tonight, bless this service. Use it in a special way for our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Do you have a favorite hymn? I was going to pass out some cards tonight and ask everyone to write out their favorite hymn, but I thought, well, if I did that, I'd probably be spending all night just kind of sifting through the cards and looking at what everyone would have as their, their hymns there. But I'm certainly everybody has a favorite hymn. But with that hymn goes a second question. The second question is, how much does your favorite hymn say or talk about Jesus Christ? While I was preparing for the sermon, I ran across an article that recently was published. It was somewhat disturbing to me. And it was entitled, Ten, Hy Ten Hymns We Should Stop Singing. Well, automatically by the title of that, that, that article, I already knew that it was probably from an author, not, definitely not of our persuasion. But as I started reading it, I, I was very disturbed by it because it was very partial. It was very left-leaning. It was recommended by a post-tribulational contemporary or emergent church person who basically is endorsing the contemporary church movement, but even is against the contemporary church movement and was advocating that we get rid of several of the, of the hymns that we, that we sing pro prominently here. And he gave some very weak, unbiblical reasons, but some of the hymns he had, he had endorsed that we get rid of would be sims, hymns like He Lives, uh, hymns like How Great Thou Art, hymns like The Old Rugged Cross, hymns like Onward Christian Soldier. And I normally don't get very reactionary to articles like that, but that was one of the articles. I just felt like I wanted to hit the email button and send this guy uh, just a few thoughts about his thoughts there. But I thought, you know, I have better things to do with my time than mess with a fool, amen? The Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. And people that follow that, well, you know, the Lord helped their soul there on that. But as much as I disagree with what that writer said doctrinally and practically and intellectually, I, it made me to stop to think for just a minute about the songs that we sing and how important they are and how our singing is a representation of our worship for the Lord. I want you to notice Psalms 45 tonight and notice the superscription preceding the verses. The superscription says this, to the chief musician 
upon Shushanim for the sons of Korah, Maskel, a song of loves. Now, I can stop right there tonight, and just on the superscription, I can give us a Bible study that would encourage our hearts. This psalm is a psalm of loves. It's a song about Jesus. Notice it says in that superscription, a song of love. It's a love song. It was written on Shoshanim. Shoshanim, wherever you find that there's a few psalms where it's preceded by that thought. Shoshanim is talking about it was written upon the lilies. You've heard the term, the lilies of the field. Well, it comes from the term Shoshanim. Uh, we read about Jesus being the lily of the valley in the Song of Solomon. In that area of the world, there, were, there, were, there, were, there would be places where just lilies, where they would call them the fields of the lilies. Now, not the lilies that we think of there, but they were kind of like buttercup type of, of, uh, of flowers that hang over, and they would have a very sweet fragrance and aroma to them. And the sons of Korah, or this musician, is writing to the sons of Korah. This is a worship psalm. This is a psalm definitely about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a messianic psalm. It's talking about our Lord. It's a psalm that was written to make us to stop and to think about what we're singing. It was written to make us to stop and think about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was written for busy people like you and me, people that are always on the go, going to the next meeting, going to the next appointment, the next thing you check off your list, the next person you're going to send a message to. It was written for us to take a moment to think about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love song about Jesus. And so tonight, I want you to think as we look at that, I want you to think about these thoughts that Charles Spurgeon had to say about talking and singing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons. He said, I believe that whenever our religion, if most vital, is most full of Christ, I can bear witness that whenever I am in deep of sorrow, nothing will do for me but Jesus only. I retreat to the innermost citadel of our holy faith, namely to the very heart of Christ, when my spirit is assailed by temptation or besieged with sorrow and anguish. What is more, my witness is that whenever I have high spiritual enjoyment, enjoyments rich, rare, celestial, they are always connected with Jesus only. The sublimest, the most inebriating, the most divine of all joys must be found in Jesus only. I find if I want to labor much, I must live on Jesus only. If I desire to suffer patiently, I must feed on Jesus only. If I wish to wrestle with God successfully, I must plead Jesus only. If I aspire to conquer sin, I must use the blood of Jesus only. If I pant to learn the mysteries of heaven, I must seek the teaching of Jesus only. I believe that anything which we add to Christ lowers our position, and that the more elevated our soul becomes, the more near, uh, nearly like what, we, it, what it is to be when, we, when we sh it shall enter into the region of the perfect, the most completely everything else will sink, die out, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus only will be the first and the last. Tonight, we want to look at Jesus only. Tonight, I want us to look at a, a, a psalm that was written that talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I preached from 1 Timothy 1.17, where Paul summed up in one verse what he thought about our Lord Jesus Christ as King, because all of what we're going to read tonight is about Christ, our King. Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I want to take us to a Bible study tonight. Very simple thoughts here tonight. We're going to take right on Psalm 45 about this King that we see who is Jesus Christ. Notice first of all in verse 1, we see the King and the Christian. We see the King and the Christian. Notice what he says here in chapter 45 verse 1. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I've made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Number one, would you notice he's talking to believers. It's a believer talking here. It's a believer writing to the chief, uh, the chief musician, writing to the sons of Korah. He's getting them prepared to sing this alongside of, uh, as they recited, to the Lord in part of the worship. And he starts off by saying, my heart is indicting a good matter. The word indicting is an interesting word. It literally means this. It means bubbling over with enthusiasm and joy. It has the picture and idea of water in a pan boiling over an open fire. In our, in our, in our culture, 
culture today. It would be water in a pan that's set over a stove at high heat. And it's water that's boiling over. It's bubbling over. And he's talking about in his heart, he's bubbling over about some good things. How many of you tonight are bubbling over about Jesus Christ? Amen? You're thankful for Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins. And during this time of the year, we're thankful and bubbling over about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, verses like uh, Galatians 4, 4, when it says, and when the fullness of time was come. How many understand tonight God is never late and God is never too early, amen? God is always on time. And he said here in verse 1, my heart is bubbling over. My heart is excited. My heart is filled with enthusiasm. It's like a fire. It's like a, 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 a boiling water over an open fire. And it's talking about Christians who are bubbling over. But then he's talking about a good matter. And the good matter, if you would, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel means good news. Good matter is good news. He had something to talk about. He has something to share with other people. Getting excited about our Lord Jesus Christ indicates we should be excited about the gospel. I want to commend us as a church that this past weekend that uh, many, 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 many of our church members invited, invited, and we're thankful for rows filled with guests that came. And over two nights, we had 900-something people that were over two nights that were here in the church and representing probably close to 200, maybe 300 visitors that came. And we thank God that on Saturday night, 20 folks trusted Christ. And Sunday, Sunday night, probably well over that, as many people trusted Christ as their Savior. And as I walked around on Saturday and Sunday, walked around the, the entire uh, room here and met people and folks saying, Pastor, I want you to meet uh, my friend who trusted Christ or my neighbor who trusted Christ or my relatives that trusted Christ. What a wonderful thing it was that, that the, through the combination of the music and the narration and the summing it up with the message that the Holy Spirit of God had opportunity to move. But what excites me tonight is Christians who are bubbling over to get people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we had our best attended Christmas musical. We saw God work in a special way. And he says, my heart is indicting a good matter. You know, it's a, the gospel is a good matter. The gospel is good news. It's never bad news. It's always good news. Amen. It's good news for anyone who hears that. But then he says something else here. He says, I'm bubbling over in my heart about the good news. Then he says, I speak of the things which I've made touching the king. Now what he's saying there, I want to talk about my king. I want to talk about the one who's in charge of my life. I want to talk about the one I bow to. I want to talk about the one I worship. I want to talk about the one that is sovereign in my life. He has number one place in my life. He's, he's number one. He's the one I seek daily in my life. I want to talk to you about him. And he says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And he's saying here, if you would, he's telling us that he's being, in our equivalency today, a soul winner, a witness. He says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The Bible says we're to be ready to give an answer to every man that should ask us of the hope that's within us. We're to be ready to give the gospel. Just a few minutes ago, I was over at Kaiser just to spend some time with Brother Felix Zhang, and you pray for him right now. He's in probably the, he's going walking through the valley, the shadow of death right now. The cancer's spread, and they don't think he's got a lot of options. And I told him tonight, church is praying for him. And last night, our San Francisco midweek service was praying for him. But I'm just thankful that he's just got that peace of heart. And on Sunday night after the service, I went over to see him after we kind of finished up everything here. And I sat down with him, and I said, now, Felix, I just want to ask you again. I said, eight years ago, I sat down with you in your mother-in-law's uh, home and talked to you about the Lord, and you, you asked Jesus to be your Savior. I said, you know for sure you're saved. You know for sure Christ is in your heart. You know you're going to heaven. He said, yes, I do. And we were talking for a few minutes tonight just about everything going on and what's happened the last two, three months here with, with, with what's happened here and how quickly this disease has, has moved, it, it moved its, its course in his body right now. And I said, well, Felix, you know, I, I think there's two things tonight. I said, number one. I said, uh, number one, I said, we, we know that, that if, when death comes, death is not the end. Death is the beginning for the believer, amen? And the Bible says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And as a Christian, we don't have to fear death. As a Christian, we can know that we're looking forward to see our Savior face to face. And he's preparing a place for us to where he is, there we may be also. But I said, secondly, that doesn't mean that we stop praying. And that doesn't mean we stop having determination and resilience and trusting God. And I told him about the, the woman who had the issue of blood. And I told him about, about Hezekiah. When they said, when, when the prophet came, he said, set thy house on her for, for thou shalt die. And how God turned that around. I said, well, let's pray that God will turn this around. And we called upon the throne of grace and asked for mercy in his life. You know, I'm saying tonight, you know, when we think of these things, our tongue is ready to react. And this evening, we want to remind ourselves that and with, our, with our mouth that our tongue is the pen of a ready writer. We need to be ready to tell people about the Lord. And I said, well, I was talking to Felix. Two of the nurses came by and I gave them tracts and told them about the Lord. And they got all excited about the fact our church is down the street. 
street and one of them says she's saved and she said she prayed with him the, 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 the last night because he's been having uh, sleeplessness because of just all the things going on and, and uh, she prayed with him and she was thankful that to meet a preacher and, and know our church is there. And I'm just saying tonight, you know, everywhere we go, we want to leave a good testimony for Jesus Christ, amen? We want to let folks know that there's a church that loves them, that cares for them and wants them to know that they can be saved and, and Christ can do something in their hearts. And so tonight, we notice, first of all, we see the king and the Christian. Is your heart bubbling over, telling folks about the Lord? Then notice in verse 2, we see a second thing about our king. We see the king and the Christian. But notice verse 2, and I love this. We see the king who is comely. The king who is comely. Notice what he says here. Thou art fairer than the children of men. How many understand tonight what he's saying there? There's nobody better looking than Jesus, amen? There's nobody I'd rather look at and, and, and gaze upon more than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Now first of all, as we look at that, I believe as he speaks about him being fairer, than the children of men. I believe, first of all, he's talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. He's talking about his glory. Notice he says, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Now, as you read Psalms 45, you need to take it in conjunction with Hebrews chapter 1, because as we'll read down a little bit further, uh, there's some quotations in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, that are from Psalms 45 here. And in Hebrews 1, it gives us a glimpse of Jesus Christ, the Son, and it magnifies Christ the Son, Christ who's greater than the angels, Christ who's greater than Moses, Christ who's greater than Abraham, Christ who's greater than the law. And so as we look at this here, Hebrews 1.3 says this, who, of Jesus Christ, it says he is the bright, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now that's a great thought for devotion when you think about it. It explains Jesus Christ being the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of his person. And his fleshly appearance, he was a man. But veiled beneath the flesh was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And we said this Sunday morning that the term the only begotten of the Father refers to the fact he's the only one of his kind. He was the only one virgin born. He's the only one who will ever be virgin born. He's the only one that came in this world with a heavenly father but not a heavenly mother. He's the only one that came in this world with an earthly mother but without an earthly father. He's the only one that could say he was born, that he was older than his mother, but he was, but he was at the same age as his father, if you know what I'm saying there. The son of God became the son of man so the sons of men could become sons of God and we consider that today we think of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ the only begotten of the father uniquely God uniquely man 100% man yet without sin 100% God without leaving his deity behind he was holy harmless separate from sinners can you imagine the thought going through the psalmist in his mind thou art fairer than the children of men Christian friend sometimes our thoughts of Jesus can be a little bit muddied and sometimes our thoughts of Jesus Jesus can be a little bit darkened, and we can let our problems kind of overshadow that. And I remind you tonight, as we read through Psalms 45, we see a Jesus who is beautiful, a Jesus who is wonderful, a Jesus who is holy. We see his glory. But notice in verse 2, we also see his grace. Notice it speaks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. I like what, what Proverbs 31 says about the virtuous woman. The Bible says the law of kindness is found in her mouth. And as you read the description of this virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, it describes her in such a way that you can't help but think of a very beautiful woman in terms of her virtue, in terms of her words, and her character. Now watch this. The Bible describes Jesus as, as his grace. It says, grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. The Bible tells us in John 1, 14, Jesus Christ as the word was full of grace and truth. He wasn't partly full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Amen. And we look at grace and truth. We see two extremes of God. On one end, truth embodies the fact that, that God is all truth. And all truth, truth reveals who we are. And truth reveals the justice of God. So on one end, truth demands justice. But on the other extreme, we see him being full of grace. And the other extreme, we find Jesus having love and compassion. And the grace of God reaching out and extending to men. Well, notice this, being full of grace and truth, it speaks about his lips, the words that come out of the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the words of our Lord, as we're reminded from the Gospels, they are edifying words and encouraging words. And if you read through the Gospels, how can you not read the Gospels? and be encouraged. And how could you not read the Word of God and not be encouraged by who Jesus is? Grace is poured into thy lips. When I think about that, I think about the fact that it speaks about the fact the words of Jesus Christ are melodious. 
He gives us songs in the night, the psalmist says. I think about our words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, grace is poured in thy lips, his words are medicinal. His words give healing. You know, sometimes someone could say something and be very hurtful. And someone could say something, it's like a dagger thrust into your heart, and you find it hard to find healing for that wounds. But there's something about the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as we go through the Gospels and the Psalms and the Epistles and all the books of the Bible. There's something about it that touches those broken hearts and those open wounds and heals them up. His wounds are, his words are medicinal. His words are merciful. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are, uh, that, that are a bur- a he- bur- labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His words are invitational. The very, fir- the very first invitation gives us come. He invites us to come into his presence there. And he's, he, ma- he ministers mercy to us. But his words are meaningful. His words always have relevance, and his words always have meaningfulness and touch our lives there. They even said this about him. They said, never a man spake like our Lord spake. And I'm reminded tonight as we think about grace as being poured into the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in a very convicting way, Colossians 4, 6 speaks about the words of the believer. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Oh, thank God tonight we see the king and the Christian. And thank God tonight we see the king who is comely. But you notice something else. Let's go down to verses 3 to 5. Would you notice the king who is conquering? Thank God tonight we don't have a weak, anemic king. And thank God we don't have a puppy king. Thank God tonight we have a powerful king, amen? We have a potentate king, a king who's forever and forever. And notice verses 3 to 5. We have numerous descriptions about this conquering king. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and with thy majesty. Isn't it interesting the first thing that mentioned about a conquering king is that he girds his sword upon his thigh. He's ready to go to war. He's ready to go to battle is a foreshadowing of Christ when Revelation 19 when he returns from the armies of heaven. Did you know this? A conquering king never leaves his sword idle. His sword is always ready to go into action. A conquering king never leaves his sword idle. A conquering king always has a sword ready to be drawn into battle. Now, aren't you thankful tonight as a conquering king, Jesus stands ready to defend you and me. He's there to represent us and defend us. The Bible says, what is this victory that overcometh the world? It's even our faith. But thank God tonight we have a king through the, through the word of God who represents Presents us. What sword is this is talking about? Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, thy thigh, none other than the sword of the Lord. Judges 7:18 tells us, When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and say ye, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And tonight I'm thankful that we have the sword of the Lord. Aren't you glad tonight that we've got his precious word? His word is undiminishing, his word is relevant, his word is powerful. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but he said, My word shall never pass away. And we thank God tonight for the sword of our king. He's an all-conquering king. His sword brings his enemies down to their knees and makes them realize they are weak before him. But notice something else, the description he gives about our king, which is very wonderful. In verse 3, he says, O most mighty. And we have to take into account that one of the compound names of God that starts with Elohim is the name El Gibor. And El Gibor means the mighty God. He's the mighty God spoken about in Isaiah 9, 6. He says, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, Oh, most mighty. It's a description about a king going to battle who's defeated every foe. He's undefeated. He's unmatched. He's unchallenged. He will never be defeated. He's mighty. He's powerful. His enemies know that he's mighty and powerful. The sad thing is the enemies know he's mighty and powerful, but his own people have yet to realize how powerful he is. He's the mighty God who represents us. And I would call your attention tonight in Psalms 50, verse 1, what he says about El Gibor. The mighty God, even the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jeremiah 32, 18 said, Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands, and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Notice this, the great the mighty God, or El Gabor, the Lord of hosts, is his name. Hey, tonight, thank God, we have a king who is mighty. He's never diminishing in his power. He's mighty and powerful. He's El Shaddai, the almighty God. He's mighty in works. He was mighty in creation. He was mighty in eternity past. He's mighty in eternity present. He's mighty in eternity future. We thank God tonight. 
There's no nature, there's no power, there's no element greater or mightier than our God. We see our God in that context. And then notice something else here. It talks about the right hand of our king in verses 4 and 5. It says here, it says here in verse 4, And in thy majesty write prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Now, when we have reference to the right hand, we know that speaking about the hand of authority, the hand of power. And then it talks about his arrows. It says, thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. In other words, the Lord never misses his mark. Amen? When he shoots that arrow, it never misses his mark. He aims for the heart, and he hits the heart. And there are many times God has to pull from his quiver, and he pulls out that arrow, and that arrow arrows aimed at the heart of the enemy to let it go, to let the enemy know that God is protecting his own. What do we see through all this about the, 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 this conquering king? Well, number one, we see absolute authority. No one's going to challenge him and beat him. He has absolute authority. He is the God who is. He's the God who is able. He's the God who's for us. I love what it says in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus, by his own declaration, said before he ascended to heaven, all power, not some power, not tomorrow's power, not yesterday's power, not Albert Einstein's power, not nuclear power. All power, he said, is given unto me. And listen, tonight, we don't have a weak, anemic, powerless Jesus. We have an all-powerful Jesus. He opened his mouth and spoke the worlds into existence. And listen, tonight, I remind you, the same words he spoke that brought the world's existence are the same words tonight that can save your soul. It's the same words tonight that can keep you secure. They're the same words tonight that give comfort where there is no comfort and light where there's darkness and encouragement where there's discouragement. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. We see absolute authority, but we see his means in conquering. What you notice again in verse 4, we think of, when we think of conquer, we think of, uh, we think of all these weapons. We think of guns and bullets and tanks and missiles. We think of all those different kinds of power, but you notice the means by which our conquering king wins each and every time. He says, in thy majesty writes prosperity. Then he mentions three things, because of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Study through Moses. Study through Joshua. Study great conflicts that the spiritual leaders of the Bible had. And you'll notice that every time when they hit those battle marks, that God was there in truth, meekness and righteousness. And our Savior works through truth, meekness, and righteousness. The greatest battles going on in, in a church, when, in, for, as far as the church is concerned, is when we're going out and presenting the gospel and trying to win souls to Christ. And as we win souls to Christ, there's a battle for that soul. And the devil's trying to keep that soul. But as we preach the word of God and present truth, and we, and we come in a spirit of meekness, and we present righteousness, that God is all righteous. And the only righteousness, the only way we can attain righteousness is by faith through Jesus Christ. It is in those battles that that our Lord is working on your behalf and mine. And then notice not only through truth, meekness, and righteousness, but we see that he works through, the, through his own grace, that grace is poured into his lips. Oh, I'm thankful tonight an all-conquering king is powerful and undefeated. Let the foes and enemies beware of our conquering king. Tonight we see the king and, and the Christian. We see the king, if you would, who is comely. We see the king who is conquering. But what you notice, verses 6 and 7, what you notice the king and his chair. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now we need to stop there for a minute because earthly kings knew that their kingdom would have a limitation. Their monarchy would end when that king would end. And then there would be a successor. Hey, I'm glad tonight there's no successor to our king, amen? He's on it forever and ever. We don't have to worry about him being toppled. We don't have to worry about some, some uh, king coming out of nowhere. I think of Daniel and Daniel's the prophecy that Daniel was given of, the, of that great image. It spoke about four world, world powers and the prevailing power of that time was the, the power of Babylon. It talked about successive kings. There would be Nebuchadnezzar and then later on there would be Cyrus and Darius and there would be Alexander the Great and men like that. But I'm thankful tonight Jesus doesn't have to, Jesus is not concerned about somebody toppling because he's going to be there forever and ever. Notice this throne is speaking about the chair of our king, the chair in which he speaks in. Now, notice some things about this chair. He says it's everlasting. He talks about the scepter. The scepter represents his rulership. The scepter represents his power. 
Now notice he says that he speaks of thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness forever. This same verse in verse 6 is repeated in Hebrews 1.8, where Hebrews 1.8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of thy kingdom. Now why in speaking about this king did he speak about his scepter? Well, I think there, there's, there's several spiritual reasons why. Number one, this word for scepter can also be translated a branch. And the word for scepter can also be translated a rod. And I'm reminded tonight that of our great shepherd, that the Bible says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'm reminded tonight that Jesus is the righteous branch of God. He's called the everlasting branch and the branch of God. And so symbolically, if you would, we look at that scepter. It speaks about the eternality of our Lord. It speaks about his sovereignty. It speaks about his power, therefore. As a shepherd, he watches over us. As a shepherd, he will have to discipline us. As a shepherd, he cares about our needs. Notice there, if you would, as we look at verses 7 and 8, he speaks about the throne, I see the musician bowing before the throne. Number one, the throne represents the worship of God. You know, there's going to be a day in eternity, all we're going to do is be around the throne of God and worship Him forever and ever and ever. Sometimes new believers read about that and they say, well, what are we going to do in heaven? And we say, we worship God forever and ever and ever. And some believers who don't know, the these new believers don't know the Bible, they say, well, that sounds kind of boring. I, I'm going to get bored after a period of time. Won't we? And I said, no, because you're thinking in terms of the flesh, in the spirit, you're going to love being with Jesus. Amen? You're going to love being around him all, all, for all of eternity. But there at that throne, the, the, the elders will be, which represents the church, will surround that throne, and we'd be worshiping forever and ever. Some have, they detest worshiping king, but we're going to love worshiping our king. We're going to be devoted to the worship of our king. We can't wait to sing. Hey, nobody, everybody goes to heaven, everyone will be able to sing. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen. Everyone will be part of a heavenly choir singing to our Lord. And everyone will have all the right words to say to worshiping our king. It speaks about his worship. But also as we think about this throne, notice again, thy throne, O God. It speaks about a throne of justice. Paul, in the book of Acts, he writes about when he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. And the Lord had opened a door for him to give a testimony at different seats. And we read about the governor or Herod Agrippa going to, the Bible says, the judgment seat. And I think the psalmist, as he wrote this, was thinking about one day that throne will be a great white throne. And the great white throne will be where every sinner who's rejected Jesus Christ will be judged. They'll not be judged to allow them into heaven. They'll be judged there to be cast into the lake of fire forever and forever for having rejected our Lord while here on earth. But we also see not only the, this place, which is the, 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 the great white throne, but we see for every believer this throne is also the throne, which we call the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, where every believer will stand before the Lord to give account of our works, the things done in our body, whether good or bad. And so we look at this here, and we see our, our Savior there where this throne is, is evidence here. He says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. We see the king in his chair. Listen, when you look at a king, you can't look at a king without considering the throne where he sits on, where business is done, where the subjects come to present their cause, where he executes just, justice and where he extends mercy and favor, when he extends his scepter and gives mercy, where he extends his scepter and he executes judgment. We can't help but think about the king and his chair. But notice verses 7 and 8. We see the king and the Christian, verse 1. We see the king who is comely, verses 2, two and 3. We see the king in verses 3 through 5, the king who is conquering. We see in verses 6 and 7, we see the king in his chair. Would you notice the king and his clothing? You can't help but look at this king, but consider his attire. And consider his garments. And consider how wonderfully he's, he's attired and well-dressed and presentable. And you have to line this up with Revelation chapter 1. Notice what it says here about our king. He says, all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and kasha out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Notice verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee. And the idea of anointing is a covering. Anointed thee with the oil of gladness above all thy fellow. Now think with me for a minute, the king, this king of glory, this king we worship, this king who's our God. And think with me tonight about what he is attired in. First of all, notice he's adorned with the favor of God, verse 7. He's adorned with the favor of God. Look again at the latter part of verse 7. Therefore God, thy God, 
hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now the oil of gladness mentioned there is the same idea that we read in Isaiah 61 about the oil of joy for mourning that we looked at briefly last week. We looked at beauty for ashes. Adorned with favor is talking about the precious anointing of God. God has anointed Jesus. Jesus was anointed with favor. The anointing with oil on a king or on a prophet, on a man of God, represented God's favor and blessing upon the ministry of that individual. It meant that he was set apart specifically for God to do something. And if you look at 1 Samuel 16, I don't know if it's in your notes. If not, you might want to turn to it. But notice 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. The Bible says on the day that David was anointed with oil, it says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil that he carried with him to Bethlehem and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now, if you just read the casual, you'll miss a lot of what's going on there. But that powerfully tells us that God had set David, a 16, 17-year-old young man, apart for the ministry of God, the ministry of being a king. He was set apart by God. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him simultaneous with the pouring of oil. And when the oil came down, the oil would cover a man from head to foot. They made sure it covered his head and dropped down through his garments and dropped and, and poured itself all the way down until it covered his feet. He had to be covered with oil. The oil would give off a wonderful fragrance, which we'll see in just a minute. But the oil was symbolic of the favor of God. It was symbolic about the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God upon that man's ministry. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God's upon me because he's anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. The Spirit's anointing is necessary and indispensable for service. The Spirit's anointing is necessary for preaching. The Spirit's anointing is necessary for soul winning. The Spirit's anointing must cover us from head to foot. We must be dripping with the oil of gladness. When the anointing is present, what is most remembered? That the Spirit is in control. Hey, can I ask you a question tonight? How anointed are you with the Spirit of God? How much does the Spirit of God have control? Is your witness leading people to Christ? Is your witness touching people's lives? Is your witness making a difference? Or are you trying to make a difference with your personality and our winsome words and our, and our winning ways and all of our personality? Or we realize that we cannot depend upon ourselves, but we must depend upon the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts here. He's adorned with, we would, with favor. But notice verse 8, he's adorned with fragrance. This is all thy garments smell of myrrh, and aloes and kasha. You read over in the book of Esther, we read about when they had this preparation for all the maidens of the king, kingdom, for one to stand before the king who would be elected to take to be, the, be the new queen at that time. You remember that uh, all of those women were required to spend six months bathing in, in perfume type things there. And uh, one of them was myrrh. And the Bible describes here of our Lord Jesus Christ here that his garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. And there's something sweet and attractive about the fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing foul smelling about Jesus. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Amen. There's nothing putrid smelling about Jesus. He doesn't smell like garbage. He smells like he's God. Amen. There's something sweet smelling about our Lord, about getting with him. I'm reminded tonight of a statement that Rudyard Kipling said. He said, the first condition of understanding a foreign country is to smell it. And I think of tonight about two locations. I think of tonight of the largest rose garden in all of America, which is found in Tyler, Texas. And this rose garden, if you look at it, you walk your way through there. You spend any time in that rose garden. When you leave that rose garden, you smell like you've been in that rose garden. You smell like you've been there among the roses. And uh, I think of there a place called Province, France, where there's, there's, there's just these fields of lavender there. And uh, they say that people that walk through there, you can smell as the wind blows upon the lavenders. You can, you can smell the lavenders for miles. Can you imagine somebody standing there working in the fields and smelling like the roses and someone standing in the fields and smelling like the lavender. Hey, aren't you glad tonight the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you're going to smell like him? 
Amen. I mean, just going to be smelling sweetly like Jesus. And, you know, if we're not spending time with Jesus, then my question is, what are we spending time in? And I'm just saying tonight, we need to take a walk through the garden of the Bible and prayer and take in the fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. So descriptive. It says his garments smell of myrrh and aloes and kasha. And they say they're out of the ivory palaces, speaking about the wonderfulness and the holiness of heaven there. And I'm just saying tonight, aren't you thankful tonight that you can get around Jesus and there's not this, this smell that's going to turn you away. There's something about it. About the, about, about the, the fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ that makes us want to stay with him and abide with him and spend time with him. And we want to go back to that garden again. And we want to spend time in prayer again. And we want to spend time in the word of God again. And that we're saturated with the smell and the fragrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something tonight. People know when you've been with Jesus. Several years ago, I went down to the Bible college there for an engagement and there were a number of things going on, and I had a break in time, and I'd spent some time that morning in, in, before God in prayer and the Word of God. And I came back to the hotel with the intention to just spend some time in prayer, some things to pray over that just were very pressing because I needed to get back. As I was praying, maybe not for maybe a few minutes, there was a knock on the door, and housekeeping came, and there was a Hispanic lady there, and she said, oh, sir, I didn't mean to bother you. She said, I can come back. I said, no, ma'am, you, if it's not going to take very long, I'll wait till you're done. You're already here. Just Might as well just you know, do whatever you have to do. I mean, I, I didn't, there wasn't much really to clean up there, but she came in, and uh, while she's talking, the Holy Spirit impressed me to give her a track and talk to her about the Lord, and, and I don't remember what her name was, but I, started, I gave her a track and asked her if she's going to church. I said, hey, have you ever been to Lancaster Baptist Church? And I said, I'm up here for this, for this meeting here and so forth there. And she says, yeah, you know, I've had some people invite me to that church before. And, and she, says, uh, she says, it's a good church and so forth. A lot of people come through this hotel and, and, and go to that church. And, and then while she's working around, she says, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, yes, ma'am. She says, where have you been? I said, why do you ask this? She says, well, you know, there's just something being in this room. I could sense that God's in this room. And it wasn't me. I'll tell you, it wasn't me at all, but I could sense that God was meeting with her and working through that situation there. And I'm just saying tonight, there ought to be such, such, a, such a presence of God in our life. People know that God's there. And uh, I've, I've seen that many times in hospital settings and funeral settings and pe bedsides of people's homes where they just sense the presence of God. There is not the aftershave that you put on or the cologne that you put on or not the fact that you took your suit out and, and, and had a, probably the, the dry cleaner smells. None of that. It's just the very fact that there's something special about being with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I just say tonight as we look at that we see the king and his clothing would you notice one more thing here would you notice the king and his companion verses 9 to 16 he talks about the queen and the king's daughters would you notice this with me verse 9 king's daughters were among thy honorable women upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir Hearken, O daughter, and consider, incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And I want you to see some things here tonight. You know, in the Old Testament, Israel was the married, was the married wife of, of God. Israel was portrayed as the wife of God. In the New Testament, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. As the bride of Christ, we're still during that, we're in that betrothal stage. And the marriage supper of the Lamb has not consummated that marriage, but all the legalities regarding marriage are there as far as the bridegroom and the bride. And I would suggest to you tonight as we look at this this evening, notice, if you would, the queen speaks to us eloquent. The queen in gold speaks spiritually about God's church. It speaks about the fact that God loves his church, and he wants his church to be a representation. Would you notice, he says the queen is standing beside him in gold of Ophir. He wants a glorious church without spot without wrinkle. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ has a higher idea and thought than we have about what his church should be. And king's daughters, if you would, represent that the offspring of the church, souls being saved and people being added and churches being planted and extension ministries being started. And notice our Lord here, it speaks about king's daughters and being among his honorable women. You're looking at the courtyard of the king, those who are closest to the king, those closest to him ought to be his blood-bought people, the offspring, 
those who are saved and come into the presence of God. And notice the king has great expectation of his church and his great expectation of his people, which you notice some of these here. He says, he says number one, that she's to be a separated people. Look at verse 10 again. Hearken or listen very carefully, O daughter, and consider and incline the ear. He says, listen very carefully. And he makes a statement here very similar to something that Ruth said to Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 when Naomi was going back to Bethlehem. She, he said here, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. That's what, that's what Ruth did. Ruth said, I'm not going back to my pagan people. She said, thy people shall be my people and thy God shall be my God. Hey, listen, when you get saved, if you've recently gotten saved, you need to meet a clean separation from your father's house. And you need to be a clean separation from what you wore and cling to the family of God. Amen. And cling to God's people and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and realize that you are a child of the king. As a child of the king, you want to be around the other children of the king for his glory there. And so he says here in verse, verse 10, he says, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. And then he says, she's to be separated. He talked about the church coming out the world. Then he says, this king should be holy and modest. Notice what he says here in verse 11. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. You know something tonight, can I say this tonight? The Lord wants you and me to be just like him. Be conformed to the image of our Lord. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. He desires a queen that is more that becomes beautiful every day, and king's daughters that become beautiful every day. For he says in verse eleven, "For he is thy lord." She's to show his devotion to him. She's to give representation that nobody questions the fact that she's devoted to him, and they, and worship thou him. That was her desire towards him, and his desire for her to be beautiful comes all together. That, that it's recognized that she's worshiping him, and she's to be devoted. She's to be holy and modest. She's to prepare himself for him. Notice verse 14. She shall be brought into the king and raiment of needlework. Now this is talking about preparation for that day when, 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 when basically she will, when the betrothal is over and she'll go back to the home. And it talks about, talks about the clothing that she wear. It would be very, very modest and meticulous in nature. It says she should be brought into the king and raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee with gladness and rejoicing shall she be brought and they shall enter into the king's palace. He's speaking here about his companion, a queen that is, that is, that is clothed in gold, and king's daughters who greatly desires beauty. I'm just saying tonight, you know what the Lord desires that his church be holy. He desires his church be separated. He desires his church to grow close to him. Hey, listen.